reported to have died. You're listening to the news on RTHK. President Volodymyr Zelensky, in his end-of-year speech to Parliament, has said that Ukraine's resistance against Russian aggression has made it a global leader. Mr. Zelensky told lawmakers that Ukraine's defiance of the Kremlin had united the European Union and helped the West rediscover its values. We helped Europe and most of the world to feel that to be neutral now is to be, sorry, immoral. 143 states voted for the UN General Assembly resolution in support of the territorial integrity of Ukraine and full implementation of the UN Charter. He again thanked Western allies for weapons and supplies and said Ukraine would continue to fight to recover all of its territory and free those held captive by Russia. The United States and the European Union have jointly called for Kosovo and Serbia to exercise maximum restraint amid rising tensions in northern Kosovo. They want Pristina and Belgrade to refrain from provocations or threats. The BBC's Danny Eberhardt has more details. Tensions have been running high for weeks, despite the best efforts of US and EU diplomats to find a political solution. The immediate spark was anger among ethnic Serbs in northern Kosovo over a push by Kosovo to replace Serbian-issued car number plates. But it's broadened out. Serbia does not recognise Kosovo as an independent nation, and mistrust between the communities is high. Ethnic Serbs have been blockading several border crossings between the countries. Kosovo's Albanian Nationalist Prime Minister, Albin Kurti, says time is running out for NATO-led peacekeepers to remove the blockades that are on Kosovan territory. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Thanks, Andrew. Good morning. It is Thursday, the 29th of December, and this is James Ross. Uh, in the headlines this morning, following Japan and India, the U.S. will now require negative COVID tests for air passengers from China. And Italy is also imposing restrictions, this after a surge in cases following the end of Beijing's containment policy. And mainland Chinese have been rushing to book overseas travel since Beijing announced it would reopen its borders next month. Uh, travel sites have reported spikes in traffic with data from Trip.com cited in Chinese media showing searches for popular destinations had increased tenfold year on year. Uh, Macau, Hong Kong, Japan, Thailand and South Korea are the most popular destinations under search. Uh, meanwhile, China's business mood shows the post-COVID economic recovery has a long way to go. A quarterly survey by the People's Bank of China shows business confidence and activity are still at low levels. More than half of business owners claim the economy is cooling and the business climate getting weaker. That according to the survey of 5,000 entrepreneurs in the industrial sector. Hong Kong home prices retreated for a sixth consecutive month to their lowest since July 2017, according to official uh, figures published yesterday. The month-on-month -month price decline for private homes widened to 3.3% in November from 2.7% in October. Compared to a year ago, prices are down 13.8%.
China's online game regulator has granted publishing licenses to 45 foreign video games, lifting curbs that have affected the industry for 18 months. The National Press and Publication Administration approved online games such as Pokemon Unite by Nintendo. ExxonMobil says it's taking the EU to court to block its temporary tax on oil firms' windfall profits. Uh, European Commission Chief Ursula von der Leyen Leyen, uh, announced in September a plan for energy companies to pay a 33% crisis contribution on profits for 2022, which are more than 20% higher than the average for 2019-21. Uh, The FT reporting that Twitter rival Mastodon has rejected more than five investment offers from Silicon Valley VC firms as its founder, German software developer uh, Eugen Rochko, uh, pledged to protect the platform's non-profit status. Mastodon is a microblogging site which has seen a surge in users since Elon Musk bought Twitter. As travel begins again post-COVID, it seems the world has another problem. We're running short of planes. Uh, While many carriers are placing big orders with Beijing and Airbus, or rather Boeing and Airbus, supply chain constraints mean those planes won't be delivered for years. Jefferies is estimating there's now an order backlog of more than 12,000 aircraft, which means those sky-high airfares that we've all been complaining about are here to stay, and things could get worse before they get better. Well, we'll be joined on the show today by William Ma, Chief Investment Officer at Grow Investment Group. Uh, giving us some updates on the property markets is Christopher Dillon, Principal at Dillon Communications and author of the Landed series of property books. And with a view from Taiwan is Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at SafePro Group. Well, don't forget, if you have any questions for our guests, you can email us at moneytalk at rthk.hk, text us on 63935925, our Facebook page is Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3 and on Twitter we're at Money Talk Radio 3. Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Well, let's have a quick look at the markets and starting on Wall Street where the main indices fell overnight, giving up modest initial gains on growing concern about a recession in 2023 and despite China's moves to reopen its borders. Investors were worrying about the state of the global economy and the likely direction of future interest rate hikes from the Fed. The Dow down 1.1% to 32,875. The S&P 500 down 1.2% to 3,783. And the Nasdaq down 1.3% to 10,213. Tesla rising by more than 3% after hitting its lowest level in more than two years in the previous session. Uh, Southwest Airlines dropping by another 5% after falling 6% on Tuesday after cancelling thousands of flights because of this week's storms. European stocks ended slightly lower overnight, surrendering gains in late trading as Italian health authorities said they will test all arrivals from China for COVID after discovering almost half of the passengers on two flights had the virus. Uh, The stock's Europe 600 index ended 0.1% lower at 427.46, with energy and tech stocks leading losses. Frankfurt's DAX down half a percent, the Paris CAC 40 down 0.6%, and trade on the London Stock Exchange resuming after the long holiday break, and made a positive start, the FTSE 100 up 0.3% at 7,497. 
Hong Kong stocks closed higher yesterday following China's move to end quarantine for overseas arrivals. And as Chief Executive John Lee announced a further easing of the SAR's COVID restrictions, the Hang Seng up 1.6% in 19,898, with all sectors apart from real estate in positive territory. Uh, The index set to finish the year 14% lower, though. The Shanghai Composite down 0.3% to 3,087. The Shenzhen Composite uh, down 1% to 1,974. At the close in Tokyo, the Nikkei 225 also down 0.4% to 26,340. In the commodities market, Brent crude currently trading down 1.3% at $83.23 a barrel. A copper up a fraction at $384.25 a pound. Spot gold currently standing at $1,834.34 an ounce. In the bond market, the U.S. 10-year bond currently showing a yield of 3.88%. In currencies, the euro buying a dollar and six cents. The U.S. dollar standing at 134.45 Japanese yen. Uh, The pound buying 9.37 Hong Kong dollars at the moment. And the yuan standing at 6.98 against the U.S. dollar. Uh, Bitcoin currently on 16,483 U.S. dollars. Uh, let's look very quickly at the state of the AXX 200 in Sydney. It's currently down uh, almost 1% at 7,025. Let's move uh, swiftly, swiftly to our first guest, who is William Ma, Chief Investment Officer at Grow Investment Group. Uh, good morning, William. Are you there, William? Don't seem to have William at the moment um, for some reason. Let's see. Uh, not sure that we've got him at the moment. OK. Um, I wonder whether we can cross to one of our other guests at the moment. Um, do we have uh, Chris Dillon uh, with us from uh, Dillon Communications? Chris, are you there? I sure am. Good morning, am James. Ah, oh, okay, great. Um, okay, let's come back. Let's come back to to William in a second. Uh, sorry, William, about that. My my mistake. Uh, let's start with the property then, uh, Chris. Since we've got you on the line, um, we we've been hearing about uh, new home sales in uh, home sales in Hong Kong. Uh, the numbers being down year on year once again, the lowest since uh, um, I think almost twenty seventeen. Now uh, we're seeing the uh, uh, property market maybe taking a bit of a turn in the stock market. Market. How are things looking uh, for uh, property in Hong Kong and beyond at the moment? You know, it's it's funny, James. I looked at the numbers last night getting ready for this interview, um, and Hong Kong's property market is not really in that bad a shape. And I'll give you one number just to illustrate that point. Uh, at the end of June, there was 55 cases of negative equity in Hong Kong. So that's where you owe more on the property than the property is worth. At the end of October, that had skyrocketed from 55 to 533, almost 10 times more. But when you put that into perspective, there's 1.7 million private dwellings in Hong Kong. So the number of properties in negative equity amounts to 0.03%. That's a rounding error. That's statistical noise. So, So not a problem at the moment is what we're saying about negative equity. No, I mean, no, property prices aren't bouncing ahead the way they have in the past. Um, but property here is nowhere near as dire as, as people might have you think. 
Yeah, I guess that's the first thing we talk about, though, uh, don't we? When we talk about property in Hong Kong, we do go, you know, are they up there? Are they down uh, in the short term rather than maybe looking at things over the long term? Absolutely right. And and you have to look at the broader picture here with um, the important role that mainland investors play in Hong Kong's property market and them not being able to come in and, and invest. Uh, and also, generally, the economy in Hong Kong has been a little bit on the quiet side. So when you consider all of those things, it it could be a lot worse. As the borders open, uh, which we're expecting between the mainland and Hong Kong in the near future, do we think that that is going to give a big push to the market here in Hong Kong? Uh, uh, without a doubt. Absolutely. Having said that, though, I would caution that it's not going to be like flicking a switch. It's going to take some time um, for the infrastructure that allows travelers to arrive to, to get back up to speed. And also the economy on the mainland has been has been slow. So it's as the policy changes there start to take effect and the economy starts to rebound, that will also contribute to uh, improved sentiment here in Hong Kong. Now, you've long looked at the uh, international property market. You're the author of uh, the Landed series of property books, uh, which go beyond Hong Kong, uh, looking into the mainland and uh, Japan and I think Thailand and other places around uh, the world. Um, how is the property market doing post-COVID? You know, are, are we feeling it's, a, it's, it's in a good place or is it generally down? It's interesting. If you are a long-term user and, and this is for your own, you know, your own use and, and you're not really terribly concerned about the financial aspects of it, it's, it's, I think it's great. If, on the other hand, you're a, a private small landlord, the last 18 months or so has been absolutely brutal. Um, if you look, I mean, just to, to, you mentioned Japan a moment ago, the exchange rates over the last year have swung from um, one Hong Kong, one Hong Kong dollar buying you 14 yen to one buying you 19 yen. Um, and swings like that. And also the British pound has swung, you know, greatly as well. So if you're trying to get your head around managing mortgages, uh, a foreign currency mortgage, for example, that that's really rough. And then you add in on top of that, uh, the restrictions on evicting tenants who aren't paying. So you might find yourself, and I know people who are in this situation, where they've got a tenant who's not paying the rent, and they're still paying a mortgage, they're paying management fees, insurance, all those costs, and the toilet calls them up, and, or the uh, tenant calls them up and says, my toilet's not working, and they've got to go in and fix it when they've got no revenue coming in. Ooh, that's that's rough. So I think there, you may find that there are some formerly small landlords who are saying, you know, real estate investment trusts are pretty attractive. Uh, we've heard a lot about interest rates recently and, uh, you know, the, the, the Fed's still uh, going ahead with uh, further hikes. And obviously that has uh, an impact on um, the property market. You know, what, what are you seeing? Are you going to see that uh, dampening things or is there optimism at the, uh, the end of the tunnel? Trying to discern what the Fed is going to do is, boy, that's tough. Um, I think, you know, from from where I sit, uh, interest rates are going to probably peak in 2023. I, I don't see them coming down anytime soon. So I think a lot of people are going to be reevaluating uh, the numbers on property purchases. As I said earlier, you know, if you're just buying it for your own use and you happen to be flush, it's, I think it's a good time to buy. I think there are going to be some motivated sellers. 
if you're looking at making money off this as a landlord, mm, I think it's the, the the crystal ball is a little cloudier. Is the money to be made in the property market for the the smaller investor at the moment? Would you say, Chris? Always, um, but you really you know you really have to ask the question: How much money and how much or how much time? More to the point, and uh, do you want to spend managing this? And how much time and energy do you want to spend? Um, you know, looking for deals. If you're one of those people who revels in doing the research, reading the books, listening to money talk, and you know, staying on top <laughs> of things. Uh, yeah, absolutely. There's money to be made there. But I think because we're out of the the, the, the permanent low interest rate environment, it's going to be a bit trickier. It's going to require more attention to detail and perhaps a greater appetite for risk. Let's bring in uh, William Marr, Chief Investment Officer at Grow Investment Group. Sorry about that uh, earlier on, William. Um, what do you see in the in the property market? And uh, you know, are there investment opportunities uh, from you know the mainland in Hong? Kong, around the region. How are you seeing it? Morning, James. Uh, yes, I, I do see, you know, um, investment demand from the domestic Chinese people to buy, you know, property and invest globally to diversify their global portfolio. And I think one of the key catalysts, if you like, if some of the tax levy, you know, on chi- uh, Hong Kong market on property would be lift, I think that would trigger, you know, a stronger demand, you know, from the domestic Chinese investor. Because one of the key worries that the Chinese investor have is uh, a lot of liquidity in the system and also they have overloaded on in terms of property in the domestic China market. So I do see when the border opening up, there will be more demand from domestic Chinese people investing in the Hong Kong property market. So, you know, looking forward this year, we're going to ask you to look back in just a second, but uh, are you optimistic at this point with the borders um, opening up, William? You're going to, you, you expecting things to um, take a turn for the better? Yes, we are increasing our exposure in Hong Kong market, you know, and to a less extent globally. I do see, you know, huge kind of light liquidity in the system will be further put into the market in place. And secondly, valuation is definitely not demanding. And I think what is the missing part, if you like, is the Q1 and Q2 earnings figure, in particular for some of the Chinese company, if they are coming back, actually um, the demand you know, on the equity will be increased. I was just back from a European trip. I was talking to some of the largest you know, European pension funds and wealth management you know, CIOs. I think the border opening up is a very iconic event to them. And some of them has been reducing their China exposure you know, for the last year or two. They are starting, you know, kind of like rebuilding exposure. So I think uh, we would see one to two quarter lag, but definitely the interest is coming back. As we look back, uh, William, over the last uh, 12 months, uh, what have been the biggest things in in your mind that uh, have driven the market up or down? Well, James, I've been managing money for 20 years. I think 2022 is one of the most difficult years, you know, uh, Mm. not even compared to, you know, global financial crisis. You know, despite my fund is still, you know, up year to day, I think, you know, 2022, what characterized is there are a lot of, you know, very short term risk on risk off kind of like uh, scenario in the market in which, for example, in November, if you miss some of the kind of like rally in a, in a day or two, you miss like, you know, almost 15 percent which is quite, you know, uh, strange, you know, in the Hong Kong market. The second is the breakdown of, you know, correlation, you know, uh, bond and equity, which only happens like four times in the last hundred years. So, James, if you ask me to look back for, for the whole year, I think the whole trigger point is by three events. 
The first one is Russia-Ukraine war, which trigger, you know, global investor starting, you know, taking risk off, you know, worrying about the volatility of the market and also worry about inflation. The second definitely is um, the COVID lockdown in Shanghai, in which I was there for two and a half months. I think global investors realize the breakdown of the supply chain in which adding fire to the inflation, you know, concern globally. And then the third one is definitely the U.S. interest rate hike. And then I think all those three events will cause kind of like very significant impact to the next five years, which is two things. One is, I believe the liquidity cycle in global and in China is in a different direction in further manner. The US, the Japan, you know, they are all in increasing interest rate, they are tightening. But, you know, China, given what happened this year, they are going to the losing cycle. So this kind of like tightening and loosening, you know, uh, direction is a very powerful and important uh, element for the next five years in terms of global asset allocation. Chris, are you optimistic for the next few years uh, in, in your sector? I, I, absolutely. The, the markets will recover. Real estate is going to recover. It's going to be interesting, though. I think there's going to be some changes, particularly if you're looking at things like commercial real estate. Uh, I don't think we've seen the end of the effects of uh, Amazon and the Internet retailers on high street shops. And we certainly haven't seen the end of the effects of, of working from home. And finally, a lot of commercial real estate now is being pushed into the green space. Um, so if you have a building that's not energy efficient, you're in danger of having a stranded asset as, as companies really push for clean and green buildings. So there's going to be some interesting opportunities there going forward, I think, as well. Christopher Dillon, our principal at Dillon Communications and author of the Landed series of property books, and William Marr, our chief investment officer at Grow Investment Group, our guests this morning on Money Talk. <laughs> You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Five minutes past uh, eight o'clock. Good morning from uh, Money Talk. This is James Ross. We're going to cross to uh, Taiwan now and speak to Ross Fangog, Business Development Director at Safe Pro Group. Um, good morning, Ross. Good morning. Nice to have you on the show once once more. And I guess a chance for us to review a little bit about uh, some of the big economic stories out of Taiwan uh, this year. But of course, COVID, we've been talking about COVID quite a lot on the show this morning. Um, that uh, has had a big impact and, and continues to do so, right? Well, the interesting thing on COVID for Taiwan is uh, since the pandemic began in February 2020, Taiwan was often referred to as, as a model for managing COVID as if they had some kind of secret uh, methodology. But actually, Taiwan implemented very strict border controls, uh, very strict quarantine uh, requirement on inbound travelers, and very strict contact tracing. And uh, the, the, these things have been uh, reduced in their severity over, over time, but even the inbound quarantine was only lifted in October. Outdoor mask mandate was only lifted a few weeks ago. And actually, there has been an increase in the number of cases here in Taiwan over the past uh, week or so. Uh, but but the, the thing is, the, the policymakers were so conservative here in, in eliminating those restrictions that uh, Taiwan has been behind other uh, competing locations in Asia for the return of uh, the tourist 
traveler as well as the business traveler. And so we see a lot of talk about uh, travelers from Europe or even here within Asia returning to Asia. And there's been a lot of coverage about the top 10 most desired travel destinations in Asia. And it's usually Seoul and Tokyo and some places in Southeast Asia. And uh, Taiwan is not on the list. So they're going to have a challenge to recapture some of that lost uh, uh, traveler dollar in the coming months. Well, you know, fingers crossed the tourists come back. Um, I suppose that, you know, uh, Taiwan is always trying hard uh, to increase trade in other areas as well. Obviously, tech will come to that in a second. But uh, it's been keen to be very much part of some of these regional uh, trade partnerships, uh, such as the CPTPP. Um, that's, That's been a big push this year, right? Yeah, they, they, that, that's one of the bigger stories of Taiwan's economy this year. It's role in the regional trade architecture. So Taiwan's been seeking membership in the CPTPP, but so is China. And we often hear supporting comments about Taiwan's application uh, from some of the member countries, but it's often from members of parliament. They want to make a, a political statement, uh, Japan or Australia, members of parliament, for example. Uh, so they say they support Taiwan's entry, but when it comes to the governments of these countries that are CPTPP members, they don't seem so enthusiastic. And then the, the, the U.S. with its Indo-Pacific economic framework, uh, there was a lot of expectation and pressure from members of U.S. Congress on the Biden administration to include Taiwan, and, and Taiwan was not included in that either, but the U.S. and Taiwan announced a bilateral project called the U.S.-Taiwan Initiative on 21st, trade, 21st Century Trade, which is a mouthful of words, uh, but it's not a free trade agreement, and it's mostly the U.S. asking Taiwan to unilaterally make some uh, uh, changes uh, to open the marketplace to U.S. companies, frankly. <laughs> I, I mean, what's what's also been sort of uh, quite controversial, I guess, has been, you know, the discussions about uh, chips and, uh, you know, how that integrates with all of this. How have you seen that uh, develop in the past 12 months? Uh, yeah, so uh, the big story there was TSMC uh, proceeding with the construction of its fab in Arizona, announcing an expansion. Uh, simultaneously, we, we, we see uh, Foxconn, the big uh, maker of, uh, for iPhone, moving some production to other countries, most notably India. A lot of talk about tech production also moving to uh, Malaysia, uh, Vietnam. Uh, so that, that'll be a story to watch in 2023 as well, how much of the, of the Taiwan tech supply chain that makes the products that we, we buy and don't often realize they're made by Taiwan companies at factories in China, uh, how much of that manufacturing will in fact move out of China in the coming months? Well, we wait uh, with interest to see how things progress over the next uh, 12 months. Uh, Ross Feingold is Business Development Director for SafePro Group uh, in Taiwan. Okay, we will say thank you very much also to our other guests uh, this morning, and that's Chris Dillon, uh, Principal at Dillon Communications and author of the Landed series of property books, and and William Ma, Chief Investment Officer at Grow Investment Group. Before we leave you, a quick look at the weather. Uh, mainly cloudy and dry, rather cool this morning and at night. Sunny intervals during the day with a maximum temperature of around 18 degrees. Moderate to fresh northerly winds. The outlook fine and dry with rather cool mornings in the next couple of days. The temperature difference between day and night will continue to be relatively large. Uh, temperatures rising gradually during the New Year holidays. Uh, the red fire danger warning is in force right now. 
And currently at the observatory, the temperature is 15 Celsius, 56% relative humidity. Uh, let's just take a final look at the ASX 200. It's currently down 1% at 7,014. And the Nikkei 225 is currently also down 1% at 26,074. Uh, this is James Ross. I'll be back with Money Talk tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. It's the best of back chat in a moment. But first, the news headlines. Here's Andrew. Thank you, James. The government has announced a further relaxation of COVID measures with the scrapping of the vaccine pass, all social distancing measures, and PCR tests for inbound travelers. Close contacts of COVID patients will no longer have to quarantine, but the wearing of face masks remains compulsory. Chief Executive John Lee announced that the relaxation of measures will take effect from today. Asked why the authorities were scrapping anti-pandemic measures amid a surge in COVID cases, Mr. Lee said this was not a sudden or rapid decision. He said the measures, including the vaccine pass, had already achieved their goals. Everything has been progressing according to plan. And of course, we have to assess for each measure that we are implemented, the return and the cost. We have pushed up the vaccination rate to such a good level, almost 94%. So I want to tell the world that, well, this is Hong Kong. Hong Kong is very normal now. That is why it has come to the right time that we will do without the vaccination pass. Meanwhile, the chief executive says the government has demanded Japanese authorities withdraw a decision to restrict flights from Hong Kong to only four of its airports. Mr. Lee added that officials have been in talks with the Japanese authorities on how to help stranded passengers. We have indicated to the Japanese government that we are disappointed with the arrangement because we think that Hong Kong flights should be allowed to use not just this for airports. And we have also approached the Consul General of Japan in Hong Kong to relate that message. Besides that, our ETO in Tokyo is trying to help anybody who needs assistance, so is uh, the immigration. We will stand by for any extra request that Hong Kong citizens may have, so we will offer our help. Education Secretary Christine Choi says full-day face-to-face classes will return gradually from February. Ms. Choi said secondary schools will resume full-time in-person classes from February 1, while those for primary schools and kindergartens will come back from February 15. She added pupils will no longer have to present a vaccine pass upon entry, and they will be allowed to take part in extracurricular activities. However, the minister said school children and teaching staff still have to do rapid antigen tests every day before going to school until the end of January. A four-year fraud trial has ended in Singapore with long jail terms for two people who masterminded a huge share trading scam. It wiped nearly $6 billion off the value of the Singapore Stock Exchange. The BBC's Steve Jackson reports. John Sochi Wen from Malaysia and his girlfriend Kwa Su Ling from Singapore used their knowledge of financial markets to inflate the share prices of three companies. They set up dozens of trading accounts and borrowed large sums of money to manipulate stock prices so they could cash in. The scheme came to light in 2013 when prices collapsed, significantly damaging investor confidence in Singapore's stock exchange. The judge said the scheme had caused immense harm, giving So a 36-year jail sentence and Kwa 20 years. 
The Israeli parliament has passed a controversial bill entrenching government control over the police. It comes ahead of uh, the swearing-in of Benjamin Netanyahu's new administration on Thursday. The law passed by 61 votes to 55. was a condition set by a far-right Jewish party for joining the coalition government. The party's leader and incoming security minister, Itamar Ben-Gavir, said it was an important step. Thank you. Thank you very much, sir. Ministers, lawmakers, we made history for the state of Israel, for a strong police, for security, on the roads, in the streets. Thank you very, very, very much. President Volodymyr Zelensky, in his end-of-year speech to Parliament, has said Ukraine's resistance against Russian aggression has made it a global leader. Mr. Zelensky told lawmakers that Ukraine's defiance of the Kremlin had united the European Union and helped the West rediscover its values. You're listening to the news on RTHK.